Hello everyone, it's time for Necromaniacs. We're on episode 65, and it's um, me and Mike tonight. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, an American Giallo film. And uh, so Mike, how you doing? I am well. What is up, everybody? It is uh, January 18th, and we're recording this. It is uh, two days shy of an of a inauguration day of Joe Biden. <laughs> And uh, the world is a bit nutty right now, and uh, we hope to bring you guys uh, away from the nuttiness and into the world tonight of American Giallo Films. So, Mike, before we get going, uh, was there anything that you got into this week or these last couple of weeks that was cool that you enjoyed? Yes, I uh, am taking a trip back to 2014 and 2015. And I'm watching this hot new show, House of Cards, on Netflix. Have you heard of it, Mike? I think so. <laughs> I think I've heard of that. Yes. It's House of Cards. Uh, I think I am literally the last person I know to, to watch this now. I've always wanted to watch House of Cards, but for whatever reason, it's 2021 and I'm watching House of Cards. I have to say, it is fucking awesome. Um Kevin Spacey, unfortunately, is persona non grata and is not a great guy. But, man, was he a great actor, and he was fucking great on this show. He's a ruthless, horrendous politician. Um, but I'm sure you already know that because most of you have watched House of Cards when it aired initially a million years ago. But uh, I'm really enjoying it. Um, really slow on the take with Vikings also. And... Um, yeah, Doyle is uh, watching his cat stuff. He's bowing uh, in the background. And as far as music goes, I've been kind of all over the place. I've been I've been listening to to some uh, a lot of Elvis again. Oh, cool. Um, I mean, every at some point during every you know couple of months, I've on Elvis. I'm listening to his "That's the Way It Is" uh, record, which is based on his uh, special from like 1970, 71. I like that era of Elvis the best. And uh, still enjoying my U.S. black metal book, and uh, that's about it. I've been I've been watching just kind of like you know, TV stuff. Not too many movies, you know. I enjoyed uh, watching uh, what we're going to be discussing tonight, of course. But um, yeah, I think I've been like hankering down on watching like these series. Yeah, it's the same thing I've been doing, uh, Mike. I um, I, I watched uh, the Haunting of Bly Manor recently i mean i'm oh, not done with great. it yet i'm, I'm about mm -hmm. three three quarters of the way through and i like it man it's uh very gothic it's like kind of a, a lot of the elements of a gothic horror you have a big house which plays a huge role in the story you got uh lonely women you know living there you got uh you know ghosts and all sorts of cool stuff i really enjoy it and uh that's been a yeah nice i dig it too i i i i really loved uh you know, the one uh, before it as well, the Haunting uh, of Hill House. And I love the music of Blind Manor. Really creepy, huh? Dark music, like kind of like, almost like depressing some of it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to, I'm probably going to find that that score somewhere. I, um, you know, over the last like 10 years, I've gotten, really gotten into film scores. A lot of, not just horror films, like a lot of like, you know, the uh, spaghetti westerns and things like that too. Um yeah, I'll probably find that. Maybe someone will put out a cool vinyl of it or something, you know, which is the big It's thing. funny you say that because Waxworks put out the vinyl of it, actually. 
See, there you go. So, yeah. Um, they also did uh, the, the one before it as well, which has gone into a, a second uh, pressing. Um, yeah, Waxwork has been kicking ass lately. Um, they did a beautiful vinyl of a Bride of Frankenstein uh, score, which I picked up. Um, and they did a really nice Edward Scissorhands from Danny Elfman, which I, I think that's really nice music. Uh, I like that movie. And uh, just this week, Waxworks dropped Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer on vinyl, which apparently was only on vinyl one time ever back in 1990 and never again, uh, you know, reissued on vinyl. So score people for, are excited about it. I don't remember there being much of a score in that film. Um, there is, though. There's that, there's that theme. Didn't, didn't Malevolent Creation use some of that music? Uh on was it the second album that that, huh. that dun, 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 dun. yeah there's like this there is some creepy music in that movie yes okay. not a lot yeah. but there is some because mm -hmm. that was yeah, one of the things uh, where there was this movie was very quiet and and i was like man this is like mm -hmm. really I feel like i'm watching like a home movie or something in that movie <laughs> yeah but uh, yeah waxwork is is awesome they've been putting out a lot of cool stuff i'm waiting on my uh Rob Zombie's Halloween one and two vinyl from them that has hit quite a hit quite a delay. It was supposed to have come out in October and then December, but now it's looking like I don't know February or something. So I also, making their vinyl debuts. I started uh, the the Night Stalker uh, Netflix docu series too. That's actually really cool. Oh, oh yeah, that's that's up next on the docket for me. I'm definitely going to be watching that soon. And I finished season three of Cobra Kai. Oh yeah, that was great. Too. Yep, that's how I wrapped that one up too. Very good, good ending. You know, cliffhanger for yeah. season four, so that's also good. <laughs> totally. I, one of my friends made this funny post about: Can we all just admit that this is just okay and very cheesy and not that good? And everybody was like, it was like people like were attacking him, and it was just people were just posting their opinions. And I'm just like, look, it's just fun. And it's very well done, and that's it. I'm not looking, for, I'm not looking for like you know, some kind of in-depth kind of you know deep shit here. I'm looking to be entertained, and this is one of the most entertaining things I've ever seen. So it's good enough for me. Yeah, and also the cool thing about Cobra Kai is that it's it's actually for all ages, man. It's it's um. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of stuff that, that young people can relate to. You know, there's bullying and all this other teenage shit that goes on in there. And then there's like the nostalgia angle, you know, of, of people mm -hmm. in their late forties and fifties who watched this when they were kids, you know? And then there's like, Oh yeah. And it's done in a way that's good. That makes the younger people care about the younger people and the adults and vice versa. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's not easy to do. Um, you know, it's funny, like, if, if someone would have told you 15 years ago that the two biggest things on television would be a Star Wars and a, and a Karate Kid spin-off, would you have believed them? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, I, yeah. I would not have thought so. I would not have thought so, because between The Mandalorian and Cobra Kai, that's like, I mean, most of Earth is watching these shows, and it's just made such a cultural impact and it's two 80s properties the 80s are never going away like <laughs> there's some good stuff from the 80s man you know and uh you know in the little... 90s doesn't get this rub the 90s has to me has yet to get this this eternal 
love that the 80s was getting. But who knows? Maybe that'll change. I like the uh, Elizabeth Shue uh, cameo in this season. Oh, yeah. So great. And she looks amazing. I wasn't even 100% sure if she was really going to come back. Like, I thought it might have been one of those things where they, they, you know, they kind of dangle it and maybe she couldn't come back. But, I mean, I'm sure she was like, I mean, wow, look at what this has become. And I'd be a, a fool to not do this. I mean, you know, that's yeah. so great. Yeah, fresh off of her role in, uh, in The Boys, The Boys series. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She's amazing. But, uh, yeah, that, that, that's what we've been enjoying, folks. All right, man, let's check out our uh, feature length, our feature film for this evening. And uh, yeah, tonight we're going to be talking about the 1980 Brian De Palma classic, Dressed to Kill. Uh, yeah, I'm excited. I, I, me excited. too, man. <laughs> and, and this is a, kind of like a, uh, like a, maybe a little, little mini series, I guess, or a, sub, a subtext mm-hmm. of what's going on here is that in the past, we've talked about what we, we consider to be American giallo films that are uh, heavily inspired by Italian movies. And um, mm-hmm. this is definitely one that comes to mind for sure. And I guess you, were, you, showed, you shared an article with me of someone published of a, a whole yes. list of American giallo films. And this was actually on it, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. As I'm just going to let everybody know, uh, this, this little series that we're going to kind of do... Um, is inspired by a 2014 article that I came across on tasteofcinema.com, and it's called The Top 15 American Films Films Influenced by Giallo Films by Dean Essam. It is really, really good. Um, like it, It's very well written, and he picks 15 wonderful films. And in full disclosure, uh, Dress to Kill is his number one, actually. So... Um, you can imagine what else is on there. I mean, uh, Cruising, which we've covered before, is on there. Um, Body Doubles on there. Uh, tonight, we wanted to dive into the number one film, uh, that being a movie we're both big fans of, Dress to Kill. Um, a great little quote that Doug Hessem wrote about this is that this film is undoubtedly Brian De Palma's magnum opus in the field. Everything about this giallo. Now, it's interesting. He literally just calls it a giallo, this guy, which may ruffle some feathers out there. Everything about this giallo is as it should be. It is stylish, imaginative, suspenseful, erotic, and shocking. From the opening frame to the final credits, the film is a fever pitch dream. As with all truly great giallo, everything everything takes place in a surreal, dreamlike world. I happen to agree with that. What about you, Mike? Absolutely. I think... Just the whole look of the film, the way it was shot, that dreamlike quality, uh, it has all mm-hmm. the trappings of what make a good Giallo film. I mean, there's like a sexual deviancy. There's, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, Giallos are generally pretty sexy. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I mean, to me, where it ticks off the boxes is, you know, it's, it's dreamlike. Uh, the music, it has a wonderful score from uh, Pino Panaggio, who's done a lot of great stuff. Uh, you know, Tarantino has, has, you know, taken some of his cues for some of his films. Um, beautiful women, of course. Uh, the use of a razor, uh, the use of black gloves, uh, a bunch of red herrings, and, of course, <laughs> the reveal at the very end. I mean, it, you know, to me, I mean, look, people will say if it's not Italian, it's not Giallo. I, I'm just completely disagreeing. I think America has put out a bunch of them and this is pretty much the cream of the crop. 
You know, another film that's on that uh, list was uh, Body Double, which is another Brian De Palma mm-hmm. movie. Yes, great movie. Um, that one, it's funny, like, that one, it, you can also kind of say, that's right after Tenebrae. Uh, I believe that's 1984, uh, um, Body Double. One could argue that's kind of the final American jail for a while until, like, the 90s kicks in and you get, like, to me, the, the, a, a creme de la creme with basic instincts. So that that's probably one of my favorite American jowls, basic instincts. Yeah, body, body double is another one of my uh, my favorites. And, uh, you know, that that's that's another. The first time I saw that when I was a kid, I was blown away. I, you know, I was, you know, there's a lot of violence in there. It's got a young Melanie Griffith. There's, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of nudity and kind of like race, yeah. raciness, you know, and I, and it just, Combined all that stuff, and um, yeah, I've always been a big fan of that movie. You know, yeah, it is dirty. Uh, it is a dirty movie, and Dress to Kill is dirty. But Dress to Kill has what I like to call that late seventies, early eighties sexiness. You know, it has like this kind of this elegance and and the, this vibe that is very specific to the time. Uh, Brian De Palma was really good at this. Um, the films he did leading up to this one, he had, you know, you had Carrie in 1976, which was a tremendous success. Uh, then he did two films that I have to say, uh, one I've heard of and one I have not heard of. I have seen neither of them. The Fury from 1978 and a movie uh, in 1979 called Home Movies. Are you familiar with these movies? The Fury, yes, and Home Movies, no. Yeah, I, I definitely want to check them out because, uh, what do you call it? Keith Gordon is in uh, home movies and, and so is Nancy Allen. So I do want, I do want to check it out. Um, uh, Nancy Allen, of course, is, is, is in uh, Rest to Kill and he was married to her at the time, to Palma. And that's why he put her in all these movies, by the way. <laughs> she, she would get panned a lot for her acting, which is unfortunate because I gotta say, I dig her. Oh, me too, man. I I, uh, I think she's she's cool. She's you know she plays a good role. I think she's like a very attractive lady. And uh, oh, gorgeous! Oh my god, right? I mean, actually, there's just something about her. I yeah, and she's kind of against my type too. Believe it. I mean, I'm not really big into mm-hmm. like blondes, but there's something very appealing about Nancy Allen. To me, Nancy Allen kind of looked like like a penthouse pet. And it, that's a very specific look, like a late 70s, early 80s, like this, I don't know, just this, some kind of, uh, going back to my childhood, what I what I thought of, like, like sexy women, like a poster, like, that's what I, I think of, like, N.C. Allen, <laughs> showing my age. I could see that, definitely, you know. Uh, yeah. So, let's run down the cast, since we're uh, kind of talking about Nancy Allen right now. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we, got, uh, we got Michael Caine as... Uh, Dr. Robert Elliott, and he also plays another role in the movie. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, sublime Angie Dickinson, the classic actress, Andy, Angie Dickinson. Oh, another beautiful woman. Yes. Mm-hmm. She's great in this movie, yes. Uh, as Kate Miller. And uh, then we have Nancy Allen, of course. She plays uh, Liz Blake, who is a... Uh, let's. Uh, how can we put this gently? A high She's scale a lady of the evening. Lady of the evening. Lady yeah. of the evening. <laughs> yeah. 
And I'd actually forgot this guy was in the movie. We got Keith Gordon. He plays uh, Peter Miller. Yes. Uh, Angie Dickinson's mm-hmm. uh, son. And we might remember Keith Gordon from uh, Christine. He plays the role of Arnie. Yes, and Jaws 2. Yep, Jaws 2. Uh, he is, yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's uh, he... the, uh, the, the great character actor, uh, Dennis Franz, as Detective Marino. And Dennis Franz was mm-hmm. in Body Double as well as Scarface. That's right. That's right. And of course, um, Go- Keith Gordon is also in one of my favorite uh, 80s comedies, Back to School with Rowdy Dangerfield. Oh, yeah. He plays yeah. his son. That's right. And he's got a great resume, actually. Yeah. I think he also directs a little bit, too, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, he's, I mean, I, you know, we could, I don't want to get too deep into him just yet, but he has a, a really nice IMDb page, just say. Right on. Yeah, he, um, it, I always thought that he looked like the dude that uh, played guitar and sang in Cave In. I don't know if that's... Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, not, okay. You know like, I, I'm yeah, not, all yeah. right. Yeah. I, mean, I those, can those, see that. Those guys are cool, but mm-hmm. they were a little bit outside of my, uh, you know, my, my thing that I was into. But uh, I always, when I first met that guy, I thought he looked like Arnie from Christine. I like that one record in particular from Cave In. I can't think of the name of it right now, but uh, there's one record I really liked. Well, there's like the a couple. cover. Probably uh, Beyond Hypothermia or Until Your Heart. I think heart, that is it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's one, the first full length. Yeah. yeah. Or Until Your Heart Stops like Bleeding. One. Like one of those. I, you know, my, my thing with them is back in the day, someone recommended them to me. And uh, mm-hmm. at, because they're like, oh, you like all this like devil shit, you know, and fucking extreme. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, man. Fuck yeah. You know, like, you know, Cannibal Corpse or whatever. And I don't know what, what they were thinking, but they recommended the cave-in to me. And, I, and my friend Andy was um, uh, a sound guy, and he was on hmm. tour of Brutal Truth. And they had just wrapped up a uh, tour with Cannibal Corpse. And they were, their last show was like out in, uh, in, in western Massachusetts. And mm-hmm. me and my buddy Taz went out there to go and pick him up. And Taz used to play an eye for an eye, and he was in like... Uh, mm-hmm early version of a, a band I played in. And, um, and we drove all the way out there because uh, that, that was the, we were to pick them up, bring them home. And uh, Cave In was on the bill as well as another uh, Massachusetts uh, band that I don't really care for called Converge. And uh, ah, yes. And I'm like, uh-huh. oh, I, got, I got to check out Cave In, man. And like, it, let's, put, let's put it this way. Nice guys. Not my kind of thing, though. And uh, we'll, leave, yeah. we'll leave it at that. I did. I did a search, and I did like Beyond Hypothermia, which was a demo, which was seven-inch and sports collection, and I liked the first full length. After that, too pretentious for Mikey. I, I punched out. I believe after that, just because that whole scene completely not in what I was doing. What I was doing with Inhuman, and I was just like, yeah, this is this is not my cup of tea. But I did appreciate the early stuff. <laughs> yeah. Now, now that I'm older, I don't want to slam those guys either because they actually are nice guys. They're very uh, talented people, uh, and and I've gotten to become pretty good friends with with Steve uh, Brodsky and uh, mm-hmm. nice guy. Yeah. I wish him the best, but back in 1997, it just wasn't what I was looking for. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me neither. Just being honest. Yeah, it's weird. I, I was digging like like you know hardcore, like traditional hardcore. 
really made a huge comeback at that point. And, and I was I was listening to that and I was playing that. But then in 97, I was listening to tons of rock metal and, you know, death metal. So yeah. it was, I was just in a different place, <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I was into like, you know, like the hardcore stuff I like was, you know, integrity, dead guy, bloodlet, like that kind of thing. And, yeah, yeah. And, that was going on, too. Yep. You know, black metal, uh, neurosis and then like Merzbau and extreme electronics and like noise and stuff like that so yeah yeah neurosis was was doing well at that point too and yeah i yeah. mean as you can see folks we do the little musical you know excursions and diversions <laughs> yeah man you know let's just fucking hanging out on a monday night man exactly exactly you know interesting thing about dress to kill now it only cost 6.5 million to make um it made thirty. Well, it has made thirty-one point nine million. It's quite a hit. Yeah, I mean that's a lot of money in nineteen eighty. Jesus. Um, and uh, of note, it was shot on location in, in New York, except for when, uh, at the beginning of the film, they are in uh, the museum, the infamous, you know, nine-minute no dialogue scene in the museum. Um, that is actually inside Philadelphia Museum, not inside the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Hmm. Interesting. I bet it had to do with permits or too much money or, you know what I mean? Right. Or, or something mm -hmm. like that. Because uh, that is a beautiful, and, beautiful and museum. That's a you know, beautiful place to film, but I guess they couldn't pull it off. Yeah, they got, they got that great exterior, you know, when she's going off into the cab and everything. And, um, but yeah, the interior is in Philly. But uh, another interesting thing about Philly and Brian De Palma is that he's a Philly guy, and a lot of his movies are shot and take place in Philly, uh, like uh, Blow Up does uh, in 1981, a year later. So also with Dennis France and Nancy Allen. <laughs> now, do you do you have think, you seen uh, Blow Up? You know, I I want to say I did. I'd have to like uh, refresh my memory about what that movie's about. Does that have to do with Fireman or something like that? Well, no, it's got Travolta in it. Actually, it's it's a it's it's a really cool thriller. It's not non giallo, but a really interesting thriller about a photographer. Um, it's yeah, definitely see it. I think you will dig. It. Hmm, okay, is it a remake by any chance of like an older movie? Um, no, it's it's one of the, it's definitely one of Travolta's better films. Uh, Blowout. It's in a way, it's kind of a nod to. Uh, the Italian film Blow Up, which is from 1966. Ah, that's okay. With, that's why I yeah. thought it might have been a remake. It's just, I, we're, we're in that, right, that right. vibe of like a, a, Italy and films. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is directly based on the 1966 film Blow Up, which stars uh, Hemmings from Deep Red, the film we covered uh, the last time we got together. Nice. As you can see, De Palma's paws. Are, are you know ensconced in Italian cinema? I mean, come on, you know. Um, <laughs> although apparently, I thought I might have heard somewhere that he hadn't really seen uh, an Argento film until way later after the fact. But I don't know. Sometimes I feel like some of these guys like to fib. Again, I, I'll never know for sure. But you know, I feel like some of these movies in the '80s. Or, or late 70s in America 
they like the directors of them had to have seen these damn Italian movies, you know, from earlier in the seventies. I mean, it's the similarities. I mean, and in and in a good way. I'm not saying that he's ripping anyone off. Right. Yeah. But there's like mm -hmm. um, a very heavy influence for him. It's too much so for him not to have seen an Argento film until like in the mid '80s or whatever. And uh, like I don't know if it was the mid '80s, but he, he he said he didn't see like he didn't see like the Animal Trilogy till way after the fact, or Deep Red till Animal Trilogy and Deep Red to way after the fact. And it's just like, hmm, okay, all right. I feel like this film. <laughs> we'll see about that. I feel like specifically this film has like a very deep red vibe, honestly. Definitely. Um, that's the thing. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, I have a funny feeling. Back in '80, right? If you were watching these movies, a lot of the Italian movies either a hadn't even made their way over here, right? Or like Argento is one of the only examples of the guys that whose movies did make it over here. And, you know, these movies had a renaissance in the 90s and O's on, on home video. And a lot of them were just unavailable. Um, to, to the Joe Average movie person, I feel like, I think they, they knew that they were watching something kind of unique and special. But of course, you know, with time and, 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 and research, it's like you really get to see, yeah, man, you know what? You know, Italy was was really ahead of the curve. That, that, that's what I think. I agree. You know, obviously. <laughs> um, obviously, which is why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, yeah, definitely. And we're we're gonna uh, dive into this now. So, uh, yeah. So essentially, this movie is uh, you. When if you'd watch this for the first time, you think that Angie Dickinson is going to be in this movie all the way throughout. Mm hmm. And you would be uh, far from, uh, you would be wrong if you assumed that. Because what happens is Angie Dickinson is, her character, Kate Miller, is, I would say, a sexually frustrated married woman. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she's uh, in therapy with Michael Caine's character, uh, Dr. Elliot. And she's yep. so in need of, like, some real physical attention that she actually comes on mm -hmm. her, her therapist. Yeah, like right there in the office. Yeah. Um, the movie kicks off with uh, a, 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 you know, a nude scene of her in the shower and a, a, you know, touching herself. And then it's to her with her, her husband, uh, Michael, who is pretty much a non-entity in this film. Would you agree? <laughs> it's like, he's, yeah. it's like it, it, he might as well not even be there. We know almost nothing about him. Except that he is quote unquote bad and bad. That's what he says to Michael Caine's character. You really see him. You don't really see it. Like you do, you get to see his face at some point. But it's it, it, like not only uh, as a viewer, we don't really care about him. It's like her character doesn't care about him. So I, I guess that kind of makes sense. You know, it's like he's just kind of in the background because he's in the background in her life. Yeah. You know, and, and even that, that opening, well, first of all, that to open a movie with that shower scene is pretty fucking, you know, that's, that's some buck wild shit. Oh, yeah. You know, for back pretty then. ballsy. Yeah. No, I mean, totally. Very, very and, uh, Angie Dickinson was, uh, oh, no, it is pretty, was it? She was 48 at the time. I mean, very beautiful woman. Um, now, that scene, the, the actual nude scenes and close ups were of uh, a woman, Victoria. 
Johnson. They were with Angie Dickinson. But apparently some of it was Angie Dickinson, like that, that like like the, the uh, you know, when the, the, the fogged up kind of shower, like that's her. Like you get, she let her body be seen to a degree, but like the actual nudity in the film is uh, a woman named Victoria Johnson. Yeah, I was disappointed when I found that out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, all these years, I thought I'd seen Angie Dickinson naked, and I was like, damn, that's uh, mm. you know, it's all. And of note, mm -hmm. of note, Victoria Johnson volunteered to not take a credit as Angie Dickinson's body double for the shower scene. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of nice. It was kind of not known until many years after the fact. But I have a funny feeling that you know, back in the day, people might have put two and two together that. I don't think, you know, maybe that might not be her. <laughs> but yeah, in that scene, you know, she's she's fantasizing and some guy comes up behind her. And uh, but she's also looking at her husband in the distance. And, he, and even then, mm -hmm. you really can't you can't really get a good idea of like what he looks like. Right. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Now. Uh, you know, thinking back, I almost feel like were we supposed to think the husband is the killer? Like, I feel like there's all these little mind games in this movie. That's one of many mind games now. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about this type of film is that there's so many, like, you you go into this thing expecting that, like, all right, there's going to be some twists and turns. And, uh, like, a lot of times in these in the Italian counterpart to these films, the actual murderer is, you, you kind of scratch your head at the end of the movie sometimes, too. Yeah. Now, it, 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 of note, Angie Dickinson was, you know, an actress in the 60s and 70s. And when she was on uh, on Carson, Johnny Carson talk show for the younger kids, um, she said that this was her most favorite film she'd ever done, actually, which is an interesting take. And that uh, the role that she had done, uh, which was a very popular TV show called Police Woman, that she didn't even like that show. That she liked doing this movie more than she ever liked being on Police Woman. And what's also interesting about that is that this movie was decried as being misogynistic and anti-feminist. And Police Woman was known as being a feminist show because it was one of the first times that a, a, it was a police procedural that was carried and starred a woman. Funny, huh? Yeah. I mean, I, I could understand that. I imagine being on a, a network television show in the 70s is probably, uh, if you're an actor or an actress, you probably want to like push yourself a little bit more than that would allow you to. And, you know, and obviously yeah. in this film, she got to push her acting chops and it was like a very physical movie. And there was like a lot of, uh, you know, like sexy stuff going on that would, would have to have been downplayed on Police Woman. And, uh, oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I feel like, I mean, I would gather that Hollywood never looked and people never looked at her the same ever again. Like this movie changed so much for her and she's basically in uh, under 30 minutes of it. Yeah. You know, yep. which is cool. I mean, that's just like it's very, very Hollywood in of itself. Right. I used to watch Police Woman when I was a little kid, too. And I, I remember being like really, uh, you know, like my young young mind you know being uh mm -hmm. you know kind of a uh you know i wouldn't say obsessed you know like i wasn't trying to like break into her house or anything like that but you know i was <laughs> enamored enamored with her when i was very very young trying to figure out you know 
women and that kind of thing. And uh, mm-hmm. but I, yeah. I, I haven't seen Police Woman since uh, the '80s, probably. So I don't know. I, I guarantee you, it doesn't hold up, though. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it might be hokey, but I'm happy to report that Angie Dickinson is still alive. That's great. So which, uh, cheers to her, man. That's yeah. awesome, right? I, I wasn't sure if she was. I had to. I had to look it up. She's in her 80s and uh, still kicking. Good for her. Excellent. So after um, after Kate leaves her her uh, therapist's office, she uh, she heads out into the streets of New York and ends up at the uh, the museum. And this scene, actually, this whole like sequence to me seems very mm-hmm. Ita- very Italian. Like the way the whole all the action oh, yeah. out. Like there's some mysterious mm-hmm. stranger. He's got like you know, that shades, and, and he's this. Uh, and the guy actually looks Italian too. Like he's from Rome or something. Yeah, he actually looks like he, he's from the Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, uh, the uh, Edwidge movie. Actually, he really does. Yeah, and the uh, like again, I, I alluded to earlier that this movie, this this scene goes on for like almost ten minutes plus, and there's no talking. Yep. I yep. thought that was really cool. It was just that beautiful uh, Pino Danaggio score going on, and this tension, and this kind of cat and mouse between him and her and she she kind of lets it know like she has a wedding ring on but you don't know did she show him the wedding ring to show her that she was married and not available or to show the wedding ring as in i'm married and i don't give a fuck <laughs> i think know? it was the i'm married i don't give a fuck and she's probably like that's yeah. like some kind of signal oh, yeah. that you know hey man there's no drama here we're just gonna <laughs> have a good time you know and yeah, she's a very, very interesting, intense woman. <laughs> so that scene culminates with, uh, like, you know, keeping in that whole Italian influence where she feels like she might have been abandoned by this guy, but then he's in a cab. Right. And then he opens the cab door, inviting her in, and she gets in. And then that's when the action starts, immediately. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a really cool moment, though. If you a blink, if you miss it, I don't, if you did you notice when she's going getting into the cab that the uh, the, the heavy is there, like the the, the bad guy, bad, bad person. Did you, did you catch that? No. That is uh, standing out in the street. Oh yeah, it's there. You could. I I noticed it tonight. Oh, yesterday actually. And um, apparently. Uh, it happens twice. There are two moments where the killer is seen, like early on, like way before uh, you know the action unfolds. Um, like basically, uh, when she's walking into uh, the doctor's office, uh, it's kind of like a, a you know a red herring. A person who looks identical to the the quote unquote killer is seen for an instant. Uh, right before Kate Miller enters the door of the psychiatrist way early on in the movie, there's that moment. And then there's the moment when she's walking to the cab, leaving the steps of the museum where you also see it again. Two subliminal uh, scenes. Huh. Yeah, I was I was too uh, concerned with uh, <laughs> how this guy just, you know, like fucking attacks her in the back of the van, back of the um, Yeah, the they, they rather, start yeah. having sex in a of a, of a cab in Midtown, uh, you know, going, going down the avenue, which is which is a great scene. <laughs> you know, and then there's the creepy cab driver who's like 
angling his mirror so he can watch and all that. It's just like very, very, uh, you know, very racy, you know? Yeah, totally. And, you know, um, they, they, they get to his, uh, you know, she goes with him to his apartment for more dalliances, which is, uh, interesting. And what happens next is, is a really cool scene. Um, she, you know, it's, I can't remember if it's a daytime or if it's like late at night or whatever. And she's like, Oh Jesus, I gotta get the hell out of here. We both, we both, you know, fell asleep from having too much sex and blah, blah, blah. So the guy is sleeping. We barely seen his face. Um, and she decides to leave him a note after she gets dressed. Right. She, she sits down at a desk and leaves a note and she just opens the, his drawer, whatever. To I can't remember if it's to, to put a pen away or, or to put something in his drawer, and she sees these medical papers, right? <laughs> that you know, I, I guess you know, back in the day, if you had something wrong with you, it was spelled out in big letters or on paper. And it turns out this guy has syphilis, and and let's see, he had like two VDs, like yeah. two venereal diseases, <laughs> yes. yes. Chlamydia and syphilis or something like that. And she's like, and the music is like all amped up and she looks like horrified. And like, you know, she can't believe what she just did. I thought that was a great scene. And another little tidbit about this movie, there's a ton of great fun little uh, in-jokes and tidbits. The date on the form of the, the doctor visit is uh, November 17th, 1980. And De Palma put that in there because one of his best friends, Martin Scorsese's birthday is November 17th. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool, huh? Now, the funny thing about the the VD thing is, uh, do you, like, I don't even think that was necessary to put that in the script, really. You know what I mean? To have that as part of the, the narrative. Um, Yeah, because it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, and, and the interesting thing, that man is never seen again. And he's never, I mean, he's kind of talked about We'll get to that uh, a little bit by the, the detective or whatever. Or, or is he? I don't even remember. But again, there are just these things dropped in this movie that one could say go nowhere, but I think are just uh, deliberate distractions and deliberate um, who are these guys and are they suspects? What do you think? Yeah, I think that, you know, I, when, I mean, like I said, I've seen this movie when I was very young as well. So a lot of the stuff I wasn't mm -hmm. really in full understanding. But I think that after watching it again a couple of times over the years, I was like, yeah, that might have been like, um, you know, like another like a red herring. Like you, we like to use that. We throw that yeah. term around quite a bit where it's like maybe the, uh, you know, maybe he's the killer, you know, like uh, he's like some kind yeah. of sex crazed deviant, you know, like banging, you know, married women every day. And, you know, you never know. And that's how we ended up <laughs> getting a, uh, you know, spreading this like uh, sexually transmitted disease, you know, that kind of stuff, you know. But uh, exactly. So she comes out of there, she gets in an elevator and she realizes she left her wedding ring on the nightstand uh -huh. of her during her night, her night of sin. So she, got, you know, hits the elevator button and goes back up and the door opens. And what looks to be a, a, a woman, I mean, honestly, it, to, you know, to, to, to anyone who can clearly see, it looks like a man in, in drag, obviously. I mean, it could be a woman. It's like, you don't even really know. Could be almost like a mask. But it has the appearance of a woman with long hair and, like, lipstick. It's just really kind of creepy, right, Mike? Yeah, yeah, totally, man. 
I mean, but you don't know who it is. It could be, and like, it's just this very scary-looking presence. Pulls out the straight razor and, and gets in there and starts going to town. Um, at this instant, around this time, uh, Nancy Allen's character, uh, the, the the lady of the evening, is with one of her customers inside the same building. Um, and you know they they press an elevator button and they, and they she basically sees like a you know a dying uh, you know Kate on the floor. That's like a really good scene. There's a scene where uh, in the mirror in the the elevator uh, she kind of catches a glimpse of this killer, which makes her a target and a suspect going forth. And she might at first she might have been like, oh shit, it's Arthur Kane from the New York Dolls, you know. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's. It is some scary looking weird shit. I mean, yeah. honestly, um, uh, I'm going to sprinkle this episode with little tidbits. Guess who almost played the role of the prostitute, Liz Blake? I have no idea who. Suzanne, Suzanne Summers. Suzanne Summers is awesome. I, I like Nancy <laughs> Allen better, though, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, this would have been a way different movie. Um, the producer apparently wanted Suzanne Summers in the role, and De Palma was immediately against it because he had specifically written this role. Uh, De Palma wrote this movie too, by the way, folks, with his wife, Nancy Allen, in mind. So yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Um, although I just think it would have been great to see Suzanne Summers in a movie, like a cool movie like this, instead of just, you know, Three's Company and television stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, Suzanne Summers, though, it's like if you're in California and you're like surfing and, you know, playing volleyball on the beach and stuff like that, like that's Suzanne Summers. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's very West Coast. And uh, Nancy Allen just looks like some just like hot chick you'd see in like New York in the 70s and the early 80s. Yes, yes, exactly. Totally agree. Totally agree. I just wanted to sprinkle that in there because we're now Nancy Allen. Is, is a part of the story so <laughs> yeah so you know we we see her with a guy and the guy bails like right away which i thought was like, <laughs> he you know, runs yeah you know, uh, we move you know <laughs> <laughs> and the Probably other thing, married guy with kids <laughs> oh yeah yeah of course but still i mean you witness a murder right you, you know you gotta like you can't i gotta do the right thing you know and uh i mean i guess that would be a touchy subject when you're um Oh yeah, honey. Uh, I have to fly back to New York because I have uh, there's a murder case that I'm uh, a witness to. Oh, <laughs> uh, totally, totally. But uh, also, uh, so now at the, we get to the we enter kind of Dennis Franz's character as a police uh, detective, and um, you know uh, the son. Uh, oh my God, I can't think of his name right now. Keith Gordon. Um, Keith Gordon. Like everybody, kind of the rest of the cast really kind of comes into play because for the most part the movie has been focused on uh angie dickens character right would you say yeah i mean up she, at this point yeah you would, you would think that she was going to be like the the main like character throughout the film and that's why it's like so shocking when it's like it's almost like in in psycho you know what i mean Mm -hmm. Where if you the first time yeah. you ever watch Psycho, you think, okay, we got this beautiful young lady. She's gonna, you know, there's a story there with her, right? And then she gets stabbed to death in the shower. And I feel like we, th though Angie Dickinson is in the film for quite a bit longer, 
you kind of have a feeling that she might be, all right, this is going to be a story about her, you know? Yes, it's funny you say that because uh, there's an interesting comment I came across that said that the film can be seen as an inversion of Psycho, right? Oh, wow. uh, okay. the Yeah, the, the introverted young man and his mother, the villains in Psycho, the psychiatrist is the good guy who comes in at the end to solve the crime and explains Norman's devious serial killing cross-dressing to everyone in this movie well things are it's the inversion we'll get i don't want to kill the movie just yet but it's basically the kind of the inversion (laughs) yeah i guess i was Um, on the but the young man yes you were (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah the young man and his mother are the good guys in this movie that that, that's you know big, big difference um yeah keith gordon starts to play a bigger role in this film I actually thought he was great in this movie, uh, you know, as a young man who is really kind of shocked and devastated over the death of his awesome mom that he loved. And uh, it turns out that that is not his dad. That is his stepdad. Because I also felt that he didn't, I mean, again, he didn't seem to really give a crap about his stepdad. And his stepdad didn't really seem to give a crap about him. You know, it's just interesting. I I definitely was taken aback by how totally absent the stepfather was throughout the, you know, he's not even in the rest of the movie. Yeah. He's in the scene in the police station with, when everybody's there, uh, you know, Nancy Allen and the son and guy who, who is her husband, Mike, um, and you never see, yeah, you never see him again. You never hear from her again. And that's basically about it. You don't hear from him again until the, the very end, the conversation that Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon have. Um, and you, you meet the, the awesome uh, character actor, Dennis France, as Detective Marino. I mean, basically take him from NYPD Blue and transport him into 1980, even more obnoxious and even more on PC. And you have Detective Marino, right? Yeah, and that's exactly accurate everything you said about him and he's just like a gruff you know homophobic you know like uh Mm -hmm. real you know down and dirty style cop you know italian 1980 new york city cop who has every every stereotype you can think of (laughs) but it's just so great though and he i mean jesus Dennis France made a career of this, and I think he's he's, he's wonderful. I mean, I, I was a big NYPD Blue fan. He obviously had a bit more color and a bit more to do and a lot more depth on NYPD Blue. That was a great show. Um, but this is, you know, his beginnings, and he, he plays, uh, again, a similar role just a year later in another movie with De Palma, you know, that begins his his relationship with the, uh, the director. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you start hearing, you know, the interesting language and, and Mr. Bad and calling a whore and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, <laughs> typical, <laughs> typical New York stuff. Um, now we're also going to get to know more about uh, Michael Caine's character, uh, Dr. Elliot, right? Um, uh, Dennis Franz, Detective Marino, is starting to kind of you know, press on Michael Caine's character and, and get some more information about his relationship with uh, Angie Dickinson and him, right? Yeah, and, and this is like some strong arm shit that he tries to pull with uh, with Caine by trying to tell him that he needs to get the uh, all of his information uh, about 
Angie Dickinson's character, which is like, you can't do that. That's like some, you know, like uh, protecting, right, patient, uh, co yeah, confidentiality. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, and also one other point I wanted to bring up another similarity with, with a uh, Giallo films is the, uh, the cop, you know, like the, um, mm -hmm. the kind of skeptical, uh, doesn't believe anyone, uh, you know, right. that, that's mm -hmm. like another characteristic that's right out of an Italian Giallo thriller, I think. Oh yeah. I mean, totally in Tenebrae, uh, not so much in Deep Red. It was really more about the reporter and the photo you know photographer. But yeah, it's in, it's in a lot of them. Um, so around this time, we get to hear this very creepy voice message, which to me, is, again, reminiscent of, of Italian giallos. Uh, Dr. Elliot receives from someone named Bobby, a transgender patient who is taunting the psychiatrist for breaking off their therapy sessions. Because apparently, uh, Elliot refuses to sign the papers necessary for Bobby to get uh, sex reassignment surgery. And he tries to convince one of his, uh, you know, uh, fellow doctor, a guy named Dr. Levy, uh, that Bobby is a danger to herself and to others. Um, so, I mean, if you're kind of watching this for the first time or, or maybe we're watching it back in 1980, like, oh, well, obviously this Bobby is the killer, <laughs> right? You know what, man? The first time around, I, I wasn't sure. Maybe it was because I was so so young when I saw this thing. I mean, after I've seen mm. this movie many times over the years, and I was like, oh yeah, it's the movie with the the twist at the end, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I didn't pick it out. Oh, well, I mean, I knew. All right, Bobby actually, yes, is the killer. But the actual twist, I didn't. I didn't pick up on that. I kind of thought like, you know, it was going to be some other character. You know, the dad dressed up like a woman, or you know, something right. like that. Yeah, like you're not really sure um and, and so D detective marino is uh doesn't buy the story that liz told him which was the true story about how she, you know she is believes she's in danger because the cat actually saw her in the elevator before it closed um and you know he's given a crap because she is a, a prostitute um so she joins up with uh keith gordon uh to kind of solve this mystery. uh peter is a uh, an inventor, Pete Gordon, I'm going to refer to him as Peter from here on out, and he has a bunch of homemade listening devices and time-lapse cameras, and he decides uh, he's going to leave a camera outside Dr. Elliot's office. And apparently they catch this mysterious Bobby on camera, and soon Liz, uh, of course, uh, starts to get stalked by this mysterious tall blonde wearing a coat and sunglasses. Uh, there are a bunch of attempts made on Liz's life, including a, a really great scene um, in the New York subway. That's a you know, very old school. Oh <laughs> New yeah, York scene. No, that was great, man. That, um, that's a uh, that's a yeah. one of my, one of the best scenes in the film. Where where uh, you know she's trying to escape and she runs down the subway and uh, which could be a mixed bag at night, especially in the eighties, mm -hmm. early eighties. And she's like, uh, it's almost out of the frying pan into the fire, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yes, because she's about to get like attacked by this yeah. <laughs> gang gang of thugs. Uh, one of them wants to like rape her. It just gets real ugly. Let's just say, yeah, some real mixed language is used, and um, you know, uh, of course, Peter comes and saves the day and manages to mace the killer in the face. Um, 
I got to tell you, the, the killer is rather inept. Would you say? I mean, for, for a killer who so masterfully killed Angie Dickinson, uh, it's quite quite inept for a lot of this movie. <laughs> well, you know, um, like he no? had the element of surprise. You know what I mean? In the in his in the murders, True. and uh, you know, in in a scenario where there's no element of surprise, you know, things went differently. You know, that's all I can say. Yeah, true. Um, so Liz and Peter have a final scheme that they, they really just need to get into Dr. Elliot's office. They need to find out who the hell Bobby is and get Bobby's, you know, real name. Uh, so Liz baits uh, Michael Caine by stripping into lingerie and coming out to him. Quite a scene, I'll have to say. Great scene. <laughs> because she's just, she, oh yeah, she's just like, she's just fire, let's just say. Yeah. Uh, so she distracts him long enough to make a brief exit and look through his appointment book. Uh, all this while, Peter is outside in the pouring rain. Uh, by the way, this is on 70th Street in Manhattan. This is, this is a, well, the exterior was on uh, 70th Street in Manhattan. I'm not sure if the interior was. It might have been. Uh, Peter's watching through the window. When some blonde pulls him away, and it's like, wait a minute, who who is this? Uh, Liz returns, another blonde wigged, crazy looking maniac confronts her with a razor, and gets shot from the outside. And the person inside the doctor's office who falls to the ground, of course, is none other than Doctor Elliot himself. Doctor Elliot is Bobby. Uh, the wig comes off. And apparently, uh, the blonde who was outside, who pulled Peter away, is a female policewoman who is uh, another blonde, who apparently at one point was following Liz when Liz thought she was being followed by a killer. So I thought that was pretty cool, right? It would have been awesome for, if it was uh, Detective Marino in drag that was actually yes, <laughs> Yeah, totally, right? So as it turns out, Dr. Elliot Michael Kane is the one who killed uh, Angie Dickinson. And, uh, you know, he's arrested and put in an insane asylum. Uh, Dr. Levy explains to Liz that Elliot wanted to be a woman, but the male side would not allow them to go through with the operation. And basically, whatever Michael Kane saw a woman that he was sexually aroused by, like uh, Angie Dickinson's Kate Miller, uh, Bobby... Uh, representing, you know, uh, the, the female side would become enraged and want to kill. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a bit it's a bit much, but makes for makes for quite a fun film, though, right, Mike? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, one of the Palmas uh, finer finer films, in my opinion, at least for me personally. Like one of the movies I like the most by him is that this one in Body Double and Scarface are probably my favorite De Palma films. Um, and okay, really creepy, creepy scene in the asylum where uh, Dr. Elliot is kind of asleep and he grabs a, a, a nurse uh, who looks like another kind of playboy playmate penthouse pet herself yeah. and like slashes her throat and, you know, and then steals her, uh, you know, and, and we're led to believe steals her clothes and, you know, manages to make his way over to Liz and there's like a whole kind of scene where Liz is being killed but Liz wakes up screaming that's basically like a whole dream sequence there's just this wonderful kind of like false ending dream sequence in this movie that definitely needs to be seen and enjoyed 
Yeah, definitely. And uh, at first, when I was watching this movie back in the day, part of me was like, oh, this is going to be setting up for a sequel. Like, it's going to be like, uh, you know, like <laughs> Friday the 13th or something like that, you know, Dressed to Kill 2, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's not how no, it went down. Not how it went down. I liked, I liked it better that that was left as something didn't happen, actually. No, no that, I, I you know. Yeah. Yeah, like he goes to the asylum and that's it. And we don't know. I mean, obviously, he probably stays in the asylum and that's that. But because, you know, he's a murderer. But I like that they, he threw in this whole kind of false kind of gotcha, you know, right? Wow, it was a very, very good ending, I thought. Oh, yeah. Um, Roger Ebert loved this movie. Gave it three out of four stars. He said the museum secret was brilliant, and he called it an exercise in style, but not narrative. Uh, it would rather look and feel like a thriller than make sense. <laughs> but the Palmer has so much fun with the conventions of the thriller that we forgive him and go along. Uh, Gene Siskel also gave it three out of four stars. Um, you know, a good chunk of the film is a whodunit, and its mystery is so easy to solve. <laughs> that we merely end up watching the film's visual pyrotechnics at distance, never getting all that involved. Um, look, in a way, sure, you kind of figure out who the killer is, right? But I also think that there is a few kind of like false clues that could throw you off. No, I mean, I don't know. I didn't think it was all wrapped up one, two, three. No, nah, I, I didn't uh, think so either. I mean, when I, I mean, like I said, when I, I was very young when I saw this, but uh, so to me, it was like, oh my God, you know, I, I had no idea. I thought it was, this, you know, this other guy. And I remember as a young person thinking that the father, the stepfather might've been the killer just because he wasn't, yes. you didn't mm -hmm. really like see, you don't know, you don't know where he's at. Like, you don't, you know, there's a scene where, uh, you know, um, oh, I want to call him Arnie uh, or Peter. <laughs> Peter, yes, Arnie. <laughs> yeah. Where, where, uh, where Peter and Liz Allen are? Um, he's like invited her to stay over because her father, his dad, his stepdad was out of town for business. And yeah, as mm -hmm. a young kid, at, at that point, I thought that oh, sh you know, maybe the stepfather's a killer. He's going to show up in a wig, and you know the right, being right. out of town was like a you know like a, a decoy type of thing, you know. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't you know. Like once again, I was like a, I was really young when I saw this. So as an adult man, I don't know. Maybe I, I still don't think I would agree with Ebert, Siskel, and Ebert about that. Well, it, it, it's funny you say that about that. There's a thing scene where. Uh, Nancy Allen and Gordon are, are talking and whatnot. And, and, you know, he wants her to come over and blah, blah, blah. His dad's out of town. That scene was shot at the windows on the world restaurant in the world trade center, which is no longer with oh, us. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 Uh, lots of great little New York tidbits in this movie. It's, it's a great, uh, you know, New York movie. Um, this movie was, uh, was attacked by the women against violence and pornography in media back in 1980. I'm not surprised. Um, they, uh, for its, its misogynistic tone and, you know, look, I, I get that. And then also, it, it, uh, for its, you know, transphobic tone, uh, at, at the time, um, you know, they said that it had a distorted image of a iconic male they said again back in 1980 of a psychotic male transvestite 
that makes all sexual minorities and appears sick and dangerous. Uh, Jurassic Field was featured in a 2020 documentary, Disclosure Trans Lives on Screen, in a 2020 reappraisal for The Guardian, uh, uh, critic Scott Tobias referred to the Palmer's understanding of trans issues as disconcertingly retrograde. There's no getting around the ugly association of gender transition with violence, other than to say it feels thoroughly aestheticized. Uh, back in 2016, Brian De Palma said, I do not know what the transgender community would think of the film now. Obviously, I realize it's not good for their image uh, to transgender and be perceived as a psychotic murderer. But I think that perception passes with time. We live in a different time. And uh, I am glad that the film has apparently become a favorite of the gay community, which he attributes to its flamboyance because apparently... It is a favor of the gay community. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, look, I just think it is very hard to, to, to look at a 41-year-old film uh, it, with modern glasses, right? Well, you know my answer to this. I, I could give <laughs> two, less than no fucks about what anyone believes or doesn't believe or, or is offended by when it comes to movies, books, and music. And it's like, hmm. you know... There's all kinds of stuff in the world, man. And like, just because someone has these uh, unsavory things in their movies does not mean that they're promoting that or that, uh, you know, right. they have those views themselves. Or, I mean, we, this is like a very, very uh, regular thing we talk about here. And it's like, I think that. Um, sure, yeah. I, and also, you know, movies are made sometimes by people that are confused too, and they're not allowed to. To, to revise their feelings too you know how many times have people yeah changed? you know you grow up 41 years is a long time to live man it really is and of course the palma's understanding of it was probably not that great i mean yeah. come on um somebody wrote uh an imdb under the comments um that that there is a scene in the movie which there is uh where a Donahue scene, actually, but looks like it's a real episode. Donahue shows an own talk show with a, a transgender. They're not all crazy murderers, you know. I guess that's one way of looking at it. But again, that's it's a very, it's not a, like some kind of long scene, but it, it is a scene in the movie. It's clear, I, I thought, but it's probably not enough to kind of be like, oh yeah, the Palma knew everything, and you know everything's great. <laughs> you know, that's actually, I, I, I almost forgot about that scene. And I think that, mm -hmm. you know, it, it kind of shows that it's like, well, we're talking about extreme outliers within this community. Mm -hmm. And and the reality is that, uh, you know, Michael Caine's character was really not part of the gay community. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, he wasn't like... I mean, gay mm -hmm. or, yeah, or yeah. even a even a person, a trans person, like he only put on women's clothes to murder people. He wasn't like a drag queen, right? Or burlesque, or you know, and he wasn't right, gay. exactly. It's a very, it's a different. It's I don't know. Again, it's 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 a part of a, of a fictional film, and I don't know. I, should the problem be thrown under a bus? No, I don't, I don't think he should. Um, the thing is, uh, doing research for this, I, there's some really interesting shit I learned. Um, did you know that Brian De Palma wrote an entire screenplay based on Gerald Walker's cruising, a book? And at one that. point, he, yeah, he wrote a whole screenplay, right? Um, 
but I guess he couldn't make it work with the studios. And he apparently ended up fashioning some of the elements or some moments in that screenplay into the screenplay for Body Double, uh, not for Body Double, for um, Dress to Kill. Oh. Um, wouldn't that have been interesting if he would have directed Cruising and, and not uh, Friedkin? Hmm. It would have been way different, but I got to say, man, Friedkin was kind of the perfect guy for that movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it's interesting to see that he has a tie to it. Uh, he And he, he wanted to do it, and he had a script, but they could not come to an agreement and he ended up doing Dress to Kill instead. Crazy, huh? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh yeah. The the uh, the apartment, uh, Michael Caine's, uh, you know, office is one sixty two, East Seventieth Street on the Upper East Side. Yeah, pretty cool. Hmm. You can see uh, where the action happened. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's like uh, I like when films are shot in, in New York City. Oh, totally, man. Especially yeah. when they're from the yeah. late seventies and the early eighties where the city is like way different, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, now I have to say, <laughs> what would you give this movie on our scale of one to five? Four point five. You give it a four point five. Okay. I I give this a five. I love oh, this wow. movie. I mean Even I I think it's I think it's awesome. Um I wouldn't really change anything about it. I just, I just think it's like an A, a plus American thriller, A plus Giallo, and it's one of my favorite De Palma movies. So actually, yeah, I get a little generous with this one, and and I give it a five. I I, I like I I thought I was doing good with a four point five, but five is even better, man. I um, <laughs> like I, I own this. I watched it over the years. I feel like uh, when I want to dive into uh, a CD thriller from the early 80s this is one of my go-to's you know and and um yeah just really there's a couple of films on my short list that uh that mm -hmm. make make that cut and one of them is this of course and um the movie body double which we mentioned and uh yeah basic instinct is another one yep. that is a go-to uh you know it's got michael douglas who made a career out of being in these types of movies you know <laughs> yeah like he made a lot of like you know a lot of kind of sexy movies in a way. I mean, he's not a bunch of comics too, but he's pushed the envelope a lot. You know, like he made a lot of cool, edgy performances like Wall Street, and you know, amazing actor. Yeah, I don't know why I focus on this, but in Basic Instinct, there's the scene where uh, he's in the uh, the you know the the dance club. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, great scene. <laughs> he's wearing that fucking awful V-neck sweater with no shirt underneath it. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, man, that's like definitely something like a cop would wear to a dance club, I think. <laughs> True. But hey, it's 1992, man. It was fun time. The world was a great place. Like, come yeah. on. No, no, I, I'm not. <laughs> hey, I'm not hating. I'm just saying it's like, you know, good for him. He feels comfortable wearing that. That's cool. I know. I, I, there's a, a, a funny little other note. Apparently, Mike Kane's agent. Swifty Lazar, a real agent from back in the day, kind of an inf infamous guy. Um, he saw the film. He said, Michael, you must never do anything like this again. Because ah. as a woman, you look like crap. <laughs> oh, man. That's no good. It's a great line. Yeah. <laughs> you look like crap. <laughs> yeah, I guess he wasn't a very hot woman, huh? I guess not. Hmm. Hey, Pain. man. You know, 
Oh, it takes all kinds of people, man. All kinds. That's true. He, he doesn't need to be a good-looking uh, woman. He's he's an amazing actor. He's freaking Michael Caine, man. He's awesome. Yeah, you know. And there's <laughs> someone for everyone out there, Mike. And uh, beauty is the eye <laughs> of the beholder. So let's leave it at that. That is true. I I agree. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I almost met Nancy Allen at one of the cons. Really? But uh, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know if she she either wasn't there or, or missed her or something. But yeah, she does the, the con circuit with regularity. And if the world ever comes back to any regularity, maybe uh, maybe I can meet her. Yeah. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah. It would be nice. All right. Well, that's my cat Doyle. Everybody. I don't know if anybody heard that one. Doyle <laughs> wanted to get in on the action. Yeah, he's definitely he's definitely talking right now. He's saying hello to all the Necromaniacs listeners. <laughs> <laughs> all right that's gonna wrap this one up kid uh we're gonna we're gonna dive into the american jello pool again but we wanted to kind of kick it off with uh dress to kill and uh we hope you enjoyed it please uh let us know what you thought of this one via facebook or instagram and of course be sure if you aren't ready to subscribe to necromaniacs podcast on any one of the many wonderful streaming services right mike that's correct, man. And, uh, you know, the next couple of weeks or months or whatever, we're going to be uh, unveiling some new things that we can do. And uh, we're hoping yeah. that some of you guys uh, join up with us, and uh, we'll see how things go. Awesome. We will see you all next time. Take care, everybody. Take care, everyone.